Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. With Lucia Holsether and me today, I'm Tina Pippen, your host, by the way, is Dr. Scott Myers Lipton, Professor of Sociology at San Jose State University. He is a scholar who teaches in the fields of social justice, in particular, poverty and wealth, race, community change, civic engagement, education, and um, social action. And we're going to talk to him today about, in particular, about his social action class. He is also the author of several books, um, Ending Extreme Inequality, An Economic Bill of Rights to Eliminate Poverty, published in 2015, Rebuild America, Solving the Economic Crisis Through Civic Works, published in 2009, Social Solutions to Poverty, America and the Struggle to Build a Just Society, published in 2006, and his most recent book, Change, exclamation point, a student guide to social action, published in 2017 by Routledge Press. Uh, we are thrilled to have Scott on the program to talk to us about uh, changing the world with our students. So welcome, Scott, to Nothing Never Happens. Thank you so much for having me, Tina. I really appreciate it. And Lucia, too. Scott, we'd like to just start out with um, a really general question for you, which is to tell us a little bit about your background and the main influences, both in sociology and in educational theories and practice and activism that um, led you to begin teaching your social action course yeah, in 2006. So, so I was... I was um, it's a, it's a long question or a long answer. The, the short answer is this. Um, I became interested in, in, you know, this larger idea of, I, I was a professional tennis player, which not too many people know uh, about me, but I was. And uh, I traveled the world and saw a lot of the social problems. And after about three years, I stopped and I decided I wanted to do something to make the world better. And, uh, and, and my response was that I became a high school teacher. I did that for three years. And then I decided to go back to graduate school and became interested in, um, in Gandhi and King as two of the people that I thought had maybe the clearest understanding of both kind of the, the analysis of the problem and a method of change and some, some creative solutions to move forward for the, the late 20th and early 21st century. And one of their ideas was this idea to develop a, um, a training program on college campuses that um, I, I gleaned. They were, they were always talking about building an army for peace and nonviolence and for social justice. And so we have uh, that on a college campus. It's called ROTC. And I started thinking, what would that look like for um, uh, today, uh, and, but for peace and justice? And so I actually created three uh, programs that would be called, we, we didn't change, keep the name uh, Peace ROTC, we called it INVEST, International and National Voluntary Service Training. And the original program that I created at, uh, as a graduate student at the University of Colorado is still going on. It's in its 30th year. Um, I'm going back for, this, uh, for an anniversary uh, in, in June. But importantly, I did that at San Jose State. I did it at St. Mary's College, another university I taught at. When I came to San Jose State, kids were, uh, I had twins coming. And uh, I was having to raise $100,000 a year for that or, or about to, because it was a very intense two-year leadership program um, that had international and, and national uh, engagement. 
And I decided at that point to take all of what I had learned and put it into one class that would be um, more doable for a, a recent father. And so I created uh, this class called Social Action. And what's unique about Social Action is that it gives students the opportunity to actually have a firsthand experience in democracy and power. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of classes, you know, I, I, I tell my students on the first day, you know, we talk about social problems. In fact, as a sociologist in social science, we, we have, you know, thousands of classes like that. You know, there's one on every university, I guarantee it, on social problems in the sociology department in other social sciences. And so why not have a class on social solutions where students get the opportunity to take an idea they have and try to implement it. And that's the basis of my class and what I've been doing for the last almost uh, 15 years now. Oh, great. Yeah. And then there was a documentary on PBS uh, yes. called uh, Walk the Walk uh, that Bob Gleiner. That's right, uh, Bob Gleiner. Yeah. And um, where it covered a lot of the campaigns that you've worked on. 12 years of the Gulf Coast Civic Works Project, yep. the uh, 2012 campaign for minimum wage in San Jose, and the Student Homeless Alliance. So could you share with us some of those yeah. campaigns and including the, the six current campaigns? Could you describe yeah, yeah. them and, and what's going on there? So it's important that your listeners know. So um, one of the charges against the class, and just so you know, there are charges made against the class mm -hmm. by administration and uh, by other folks in the community mm -hmm. and beyond, that I'm brainwashing the students, that mm -hmm. I have a leftist agenda, and I'm trying to ram that through them and, and you know, basically be a puppet master for them. And what I say is I teach democracy. I teach about power. Students come into my class, and they can choose any project they want to try to change a public policy. So it's really up to the students. I make no, uh, you know, I'm not saying you gotta join this campaign or that campaign. They, they select whatever campaign they want. They're usually about the, you know, what they're interested in. And so, you know, uh, minimum wage was a perfect example. In fact, that's the one, if you're from the Bay Area and South Bay, if you mention uh, the minimum wage, uh, they'll say, oh, those are the students of San Jose State did that. So it's, the most, it's the most well-known in Silicon Valley of all the campaigns, but the students have won maybe now 15 campaigns in the 14 year or so years we've been doing social action. So they've had a lot of success. I'll tell you about some of them, but the minimum wage campaign was probably the, the biggest one because it was the single greatest increase in the minimum wage in the history of the country, a $2 at one time increase. And then another $5 on top of that. So it went from eight to 10, and then the students started pushing for 15, which we're at now. So that was, a, you know, was monumental. And I always say this, Tina, if this happened at Harvard or at Yale or at Princeton or Stanford, you'd all know my students. <laughs> they would be household names. Mm -hmm. uh, but because we're at a working class university with mostly students of color that did not get the attention it deserved. But, and, and so, Bob Glinner in his that PBS documentary, Walk the Walk, which is available, you can just download it on Vimeo if you wanna see it, is that mm -hmm. it highlights that campaign and that the students were the ones that created the idea. They were the ones that developed the uh, allies, which is an important part of, part of chapter four about how to build power is, is developing allies. So they developed an, uh, an allyship with um, labor, faith, and the nonprofit uh, sector. And over two years, 
and this is another important part, the class gets taught every semester. So any campaign can continue on if at least three students in the next group, the next class, accepts it or, or adopts it as theirs. So that campaign went for four semesters. Uh, by the end of it, almost every student was involved in it out of the class. It was their choice. And they won 60 to 40%. And this is, you have to remember, in 2012, when the, they were the first minimum wage campaign to win since San Francisco had won in the early 2000s. So it was really before Occupy. They started in 2010. So, but the same forces that were driving the Occupy movement were impacting my students. And, uh, and my students responded with this kind of incredible victory. So that's highlighted in Walk the Walk, that video that's on PBS. The other one was the, the Gulf Coast Civic Works, which was, and, and I, I'll stop here if you have any questions, but the Gulf Coast Civic Works was a, a huge bite of an apple. They were trying to change uh, national policy, uh, a much more challenging thing to do to change city policy, yeah. uh, but still, you know, they, 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 they responded to the crisis after Hurricane Katrina, and they mm -hmm. came up with the idea of a public works, a massive public works project. And they did it in collaboration with, uh, eventually built over 250 or 240 organizations joined that, that movement, 38 universities, to try to push a massive public works rebuilding effort where people would get paid a minimum wage and the jobs would go to the people of the Gulf Coast, which did not happen, by the way, and did not have an equitable uh, rebuilding of the Gulf Coast. But if they would have passed the Gulf Coast Civic Works, it would have. So they weren't successful in that. The documentary shows they didn't win, but a lot of that skills that they had developed transferred over to future campaigns that were talked about in the book that, that mm -hmm. continually help our students today. Well, and speaking of some of those current campaigns, I'm wondering if you could talk about the um, Student Homeless Alliance and the work that they're doing. I was, um, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised about this because poverty is all around us, but um, I had to read that um, more than 11% of students in the California State University yes. system have yeah. experienced homelessness and the number is even higher for SJSU. Will you tell us about what your students are doing to yeah. um, envision something different? So what's interesting about the Student Homeless Alliance was that um, ever since I came to San Jose State, even before this class had developed, there was always a Student Homeless Alliance on the campus at some point. It would sometimes depend on the energy of students if that, how strong it would be, but there was always a group. And, um, and then when I started teaching the class, they got more energy with, those, with the students, and so they were a little bit more established. Um, and they had always worked on the community uh, homeless crisis, which going back to 2006, um, we're actually celebrating the 14th anniversary of what we call Poverty Under the Stars, where students will sleep out to be in solidarity with people who are facing homelessness. And we are in San Jose, we're not known for it, but we're the homeless capital of Northern California. Wow. We have more, capital, more people homeless in our community than anywhere else in Northern California. When that news broke, the students in the Student Homeless Alliance, and actually was a part of my class, decided to have that event, uh, uh, this, this Poverty of Stars. Now this 14 years later, the homeless crisis has engulfed them. It, it hadn't engulfed them because the price of housing wasn't as extreme as it is now to now now it's about $2,800 for a two-bedroom apartment and it's just too much for our students an average bed on our campus is $1,200 in the dorms for a bed so um, uh, 13 percent of our students experience homelessness on our campus over 4,000 students 
um, uh, have experienced homelessness. And as a response to that, about two years ago, a social action class started focusing on trying to get the university to respond. And um, how they wanted them to respond was they wanted um, emergency beds on the campus. So any student that's couch surfing or sleeping in the library, which many are, or in the student union, they could get an emergency bed on the campus. The other demand was rental assistance. They wanted rental assistance to help them if they're about to be foreclosed on, or if they didn't have needed first, last, um, and uh, a deposit. So those were the demands. They were rebuffed for a year and a half. In fact, they met with the president, Student Homeless Alliance, another group of students uh, from another class last uh, March 6th, and the president said no to all their demands. And then, uh, but she did say, I, I'm committed to housing every Spartan, uh, where, where the San Jose State Spartans. But she didn't say how it was gonna happen. Well, she asked if the Student Homeless Alliance would uh, send uh, for folks that we knew about who were homeless to uh, the San Jose State Cares, their campus organization that focuses on homelessness. And we had been doing that. And we sent over, the, uh, they, they had moved from about 15 people getting um, uh, to that office to over 200 people and over 100 of them requested beds. And then the news broke in October that the university only housed six of those almost 100 students. And with that information, they went back to uh, the press, called a major press conference. Every press was there and they condemned it and they asked the university to, this is totally unacceptable. And with that kind of pressure and those are tactics that are described in the book Change, uh, of how to um, take contradictions within the system and then highlight them through, through events like a press conference and then how to get press there is described in the, in the book as well, uh, change. So we had a huge amount of press there. We had about 100 students and it forced, I believe, the university to sit down with the students and kind of incredibly over three months, the students met four times with the vice president of student affairs, the number three in the campus, and four times with the provost in meetings with the chief of staff, and they hammered out an agreement together, which was announced in late January, which got um, attention throughout the whole Northern California. Every, every press, there was like 10 press cameras there to cover that event. And it was announced 12 emergency beds for our students, um, and more if they're, if they're gonna be more students, if more beds are needed, with two plus million dollars for rental assistance. So they got a very specific win um, that was a win for our students, a win for the university in large, and, you know, collab and it was a collaboration with the administration that provided that. And at these times of, you know, with these anti-democratic forces that are so uh, rising in our, in our United States and in the world, we have to have a figure out a way to make democracy and to make problem solving work. And this book, I think, provides a guideline for that. Yeah. Well, are any uh, other California institutions um, taking up the cause? Yeah. So the students have, um, they knew that they, had, um, they were going to have that successful conclusion to that campaign in December, but they had to hold it secret for almost two months until it was announced publicly. Hard, hard for the students because they wanted to go and scream and shout and mm -hmm. you know, tell people, but they held it quiet. But they started immediately organizing about the next campaign they're running, which is a statewide campaign. And they have over 10 CSUs who are going to hold events this February 20th for those 53,000 homeless students. I mean, just 
Think about that. Within the California State University system, which is our largest, the largest public education system in the world, the California State University system. Mm-hmm. We, have, we have over close to 500,000 students. And the CSU study, the chancellor's own study, showed 11% of those students who have been homeless in the past year, or 53,000 students. So they're going to dramatize that and highlight that in teach-ins, in sleepouts across the state at these 10 CSUs, and start start asking the assembly, the Senate, and the governor to respond. And what they want them to do is to, and again, the policy change, because that's what this is about, changing a policy. The policy they want changed is um, uh, to reform what we have called Cal Grants, which pays for tuition for working class and low-income students, but does not pay for housing. And this would amend that to pay for housing. It would double the amount from $2 billion to $4 billion uh, in aid to the students. And it, um, you know, it would be a huge win. It would, it would totally alleviate this crisis among our students who can't pay for their you know, going to college. In one of your books, you say that um, you didn't choose Civic Works, that Civic Works chose me. Uh, could you talk about your, um, you know, the background in that, go into a little more detail, um, how you, um, you know, the forces, uh, the theory, the methodology as a sociologist that uh, drew you to do this social action course for over a decade? Yeah, so I would say, well, twofold. One, one you have to have an awakening to actually, you know, you, to get a direction in your life. And I would say that to all the young people who are listening, you know, pay attention to those moments that are, uh, that, you know, kind of knock you off your chair <laughs> and, and, and have, a, have a different calling for your, that, that you thought you were gonna have. And mine came as a teacher teaching high school um, and when a student asked me about the Holocaust, and she asked, how could the Holocaust happen? Mm-hmm. And um, I went, and we were talking about World War II, I went into a discussion about the kind of how it was set up, you know, the death camps, and kind of the very specifics around the, the concentration camps, mm-hmm. and how the Germans, you know, um, had this racist ideology, which led to the final solution. And, and she stopped me and then said, no, 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 I'm not asking that. What I'm asking is, how do we allow, it, how, allow this to happen? We humans, how do we humans do this to one another? And that was a much, much more challenging question. And I said to her, uh, I'll get back to you. you know, I don't have a good answer right now. And, and, uh, and, and that's what put me on a search, really, to Gandhi and King and to where I stand today, which was that we have to have a response to the social suffering that's going on in our nation and in the world. So that's kind of the, the, the you know, the kind of the personal side. And then just theoretically, when you start doing the, the, when you start looking at Gandhi and King, you know, that leads you Paulo Ferrer. And I became, you know, read Pedagogy of the Press. And I started thinking about this action reflection um, and, and this, you know, this uh, yeah. banking system of education, which our K-12 and much of our colleges are based on, and that I was going to create a new pedagogy, or at least not a new one, but at least my pedagogy was going to be in alignment with Ferrer and others who are calling mm-hmm. for a decentralized classroom and that we are co-creators of knowledge in the classroom. 
So it wasn't going to be part of the dominant cultural paradigms way of doing it. So that was one. And then just kind of reading everything from, you know, bell hooks and from uh, the kind of the, the black women's political councils and all the way up to, you know, um, to uh, black lives matter about having leader full opportunities rather than having a leader. And mm -hmm. so my classes are very decentralized. They're, um, you know, they're, they're dialectic, you know, we're in dialogue. I tell them, you have, I have some knowledge about this. I've been doing it for 30 semesters, 15 years. You know, I have a lot to think, you know, I've thought about it, but you have lived as a lived experience and you bring something to the table. Mm -hmm. And so I, I approach it like that. And I would say one other thing, my general experience when I talk about social action and why faculty, um, there is faculty, and we can talk about that later, who are starting to adopt this, you know, there's like we have maybe 15 or 20 that are using change and that are, you know, attempting to do this, this use this model in their own way, because there's hundreds of ways to do it. There's different ways, but to use this more Ferrarian model. But most of the folks in my department for, and, and departments around the country, they, and I think students is like, one, how do you do it? So the book explains that. But two, a lot of people kind of blame the students. Like it's their, their fault that they're not engaged. You know, the students don't think that they can bring about the change. They're disempowered. So I think it's up to us to show examples of it's possible and that there's actually, um, there's actually a, a book, you know, there's a set of rules that a lot of other people, you know, Saul Linsky and, you know, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Rocha, who thought through there's tactics and strategies that they can use to be successful. And so I'm about success. And not that you don't have failure, but it is possible to bring about change. Mm -hmm. Scott, I'm interested in you, that you briefly touched on this and just now, um, I'm interested in the kinds of power relations and sort of loci of power that you think about and then connect in your teaching. You mentioned the power dynamics of the classroom. There's also the power dynamics that students have when they go out into the community and then whatever that relationship looks like as it evolves and the power dynamics of doing civic change while in ways that target people who have institutional power and i wonder how um, in your pedagogy you connect those different locations how you think about them in conjunction with one another and think about their differences I think it's a really important question. So um, we just did this in my class. So um, I'm thinking a lot about it as, as you and I speak right now, um, Lucia, is power is, there has to be, first of all, before you answer all those other questions, <laughs> there has to be a, a discussion about what is power because the students are very skeptical about power. They, many times I teach at a working class institution. Most of my students are students of color. Power has been used to dominate their communities many times, and this idea of power over them. And so when you say you talk about power, they're like, I don't want anything to do with that power. You know, I want to, I want to stay away from it. So first there has to be an understanding of, of what power is. And so I, in the book, I describe, uh, you know, that power is the ability to achieve purpose, is to get something done, and that there's multiple ways to think about it. Some of this negative power over, but you can have what Martin Luther King talked about, which is have power um, integrated with, with love to kind of get justice. 
So it doesn't have to be a dominating sense of power. So we have this full, full discussion about power uh, up front and that do they see themselves as powerful? And if not, why not? And could they imagine themselves to be powerful or to have power? So we have that conversation together first. So once they get understanding about this idea of like even accepting that they could be powerful and that they might have power is that we, we talk about the three types of power, power over, power with, and power for. And um, I would just say, I don't have, you know, I don't, we can talk with one of that specific, but really I, I teach out of, a, of an integration of this power with model, which is that there's a kind of a uh, leader full and collective leadership between the small group um, process. And then sometimes using power over when it comes to in a Solinsky model, which is, you know, the idea that you have to match the power of your opponent, that you have to be as powerful as they are to quote unquote, win a campaign. So we talk about in those terms, um, which is important. Now, let me talk about the, particularly when you, so my students, uh, there's, again, students of color, but there's always various intersectionalities, uh, di different parts of that. So for example, one of my students um, were working on um, getting more resources for undocumented students on the campus. We had scholarships that were not being given to undocumented students on our campus. We had um, computers that could not be checked out by the um, in the main buildings to undocumented students because they required a driver's license rather than um, anything else. So a, a group of students worked on a campaign and changed those policies, by the way. You know, now most scholarships, if they're not federal, are, are now open to undocumented students at, at San Jose State and the, um, particularly the ST Saffold Award was a major award on our campus. Plus they can get, undocumented students can get the resources because they can use a tower ID card rather their, their, their card. They got that change rather than a license. So, but here's the key part about the marginalization part of like, you know, when you're working in community about, you know, sometimes certain people are talking over other groups, they came up with a rule after a conversation on privilege and lack of privilege. And here's the thing, everyone has, you know, most people have privilege and most people lack privilege. You know, there are certain groups that have, you know, hundred percent total privilege, and there are some folks that have 100% lack of privilege, but there are even the people that are marginalized might have documentation and they have that privilege. So we get them to think about their privileges and their lack of privileges. And then we talk about how they're going to work as a group to help compensate, to make sure that those folks that are the most marginalized are getting heard. And particularly like those undocumented students and the, cause they were undocumented students and documented students. So the undocumented students always spoke first in that small group would be an example of how they came. So they had a very open dialogue about what does it mean to be undocumented in this group and what does it mean to be not to have documents. So through dialogue, they came to an understanding of how to work together. Now, when they go out into the larger group, uh, which they do, and they were into the community, uh, similar conversations happen. They worked, our group um, worked, our students worked with um, a food cart organization they were they were because they would sell vegetables fresh vegetables fresh fruit in food carts there were all these policies that restricted that and the students helped win that campaign to allow food carts to be closer to businesses closer to schools um, not so much money up front to get a food cart license they won those victories because they weren't the leaders of that but they understood that as students, they had certain privileges and they helped them get meetings 
that the food cart folks said we'd never get because we'd asked them and they wouldn't get them, but because the students asked them, certain city council members gave them those meetings and then the food cart folks would be right there. So it's kind of having that dialogue, I think, about what the students can contribute and where, where you know, and what are their privileges and where, and where should they, you know, be forceful and where they should play a, you know, a back role if they're working within the larger community and that other folks who are more marginalized should be out front. So, and, and have a direct say, you know, food carts were about the food carts people. So our students weren't food cart folks, but we could support them and be allies with them. So I think that that open dialogue is key, Lucia, when you're talking about power and working in groups, particularly when you have, you know, marginalization, whether by race, class, gender, sexuality. That ends part one of our conversation with Scott Myers Lipton. In part two, Scott is going to tell us more about his social action course.